Please take your Bibles and turn to the passage of Scripture that was read last evening. It is not my intention to expound that passage, but it is a very helpful passage with which to begin our meditations this evening. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're going to read the first 14 verses. John is speaking about the Lord Jesus and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now there is a question but we cannot help but ask, as we think about John telling us here in verse 14 about the word becoming flesh. And it's the very basic question, why? Here is the word. This is John's special title for Jesus. And in the beginning, when this world was brought into being, he was already there. With God, himself God. This was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And here, in verse 14, John tells us that he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And when you think about it, it really is an astonishing thing that he should become anything. Because this is the eternal, unchanging God. And yet so it was. He became flesh. To use H.P. Liddon's vivid imagery, he took our nature and wrapped it around himself like a garment. And for the Christian mind at least, it is the most natural thing in the world to ask the question, why? Why the incarnation? Why choose 
this way, Lord, of providing us with a Savior and with salvation. Well, as with all of God's actions, the reasons for the incarnation are many. But at the heart of them all is this event on which we're going to be especially focusing our attention this evening, and that is our Savior's death. It was supremely to die for us that he took to himself our humanity. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, to give you just one text. Since the children, that is the children God had given him, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that, and here we come to the reason, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It was to die for us, and by his death secure our freedom from the fear of death and from the one who holds the power of death. But it was necessary for him to assume a nature that was capable of dying and of becoming flesh and making his dwelling amongst us. That is exactly what he did. Our theme then this evening is Christ's humanity in relation to his death. All our thinking this evening about the purpose of the incarnation is going to focus in on this one thing, his death for us. And there are five things to which I want to draw your attention. And the first is this, Christ in his humanity being naturally susceptible to death. And by naturally susceptible to death, I mean this, even though he was completely free from sin, morally without flaw, death was something that from the beginning he was capable of experiencing. The body that he took in his sinlessness was a body that could die. And I think it's helpful to think in this connection about our first father, Adam. The Lord God, Genesis 2 verse 7, forms the man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and Adam becomes a living being. What kind of body did he have? What kind of body did God give to him? Well, on the one hand, and this is such an important point, it was a body that was not inevitably subject to death. God did not make our first father, Adam, with the seeds of mortality already planted in his human frame. Death is not something that lies before him, come what may. Adam comes from his creator's hand, sinless. And because he is sinless, death is not inevitable. It can be avoided. And it will be avoided if he remains without sin. But if on the one hand, Adam's body was not inevitably subject to death, neither on the other hand was it naturally immune from death. What do I mean? Simply this. You take a sinless man and starve him. 
You deprive him of food and drink. Or you stab him. What will happen? He will die. Just the kind of body that he has. And so Adam needs, for example, to be nourished. And God, for his nourishment, for his help, for the preservation of his life, fills the Garden of Eden where he plants him with trees that are good for food. Now, as with Adam in his unfallen state, so with Christ when he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. His humanity was naturally susceptible to death, notwithstanding the fact that he was both sinless and divine. And I think the most striking illustration that we have of that is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says to him, Get up, take the child. This is just after the wise men have come from the east. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Sinless and divine as he unquestionably is, he is in danger. And Joseph must take steps to protect him. He must escape with this this child for their lives. And there in Egypt, they must remain until it is safe for them to return. It is one of those incidental proofs, brethren, of how true, how real our Savior's humanity was. If you and I were in his place and Herod was bent on taking our lives, our danger would be real. And his danger was no less so. So there's the first thing. In his humanity, he is naturally susceptible to death. And so he needs to eat. He needs to be protected from the cold. He needs to be taken to a place of safety when Herod purposes to kill him. But now secondly, and here we take a huge step. I want us to think about Christ and his humanity becoming justly liable to death. And by justly liable to death, I mean this, it becomes right for Jesus to die. Right for God, who has death in his hands, to inflict death upon Jesus. We go back again to Adam. You boys and girls who are here this evening, it's so wonderful to see you here. You remember, I'm sure, what God said to Adam when he put him in the Garden of Eden. He gave him a commandment, didn't he? There was a certain tree tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he was forbidden to eat from. And if he disobeyed that commandment of God, there would be a penalty. And the penalty was death. Adam would become justly liable to death if he broke the commandment. God could righteously inflict death upon him. In those circumstances, would righteously inflict death upon him. And did. We may believe, for example, that the very instant 
Adam transgressed the commandment of God. The seeds of mortality were sown in his frame. He began, as it were, to die. And though God certainly in his mercy spared him for many a long year, far longer than he will spare any of us, the day eventually came for Adam to return to the dust from which he had come. Altogether, Genesis 5 verse 5, Adam lived 930 years and he died. So Adam by his sin became justly liable to death. And it is to just such a death that we have become liable as well. Why do we die? What an important question. Why is it impossible for us to go on living endlessly? I think of a man by the name of Brownie. That was his nickname. He lived across the road from Grace Baptist Church where I minister. He's an old man. But I know that he said to one of the members of our church on one occasion, he enjoyed very good health. I'm not going to die. But of course he did die. And then later on his wife died. And eventually the house was sold. And in the language of Scripture, the place that knew him once knows him no longer. He could not cheat death. And no matter what we do, we cannot cheat it either. Why is it? Well, it's not just because that's the way things are. It's not because that's the way that God made us as human beings. It's because of one thing and one thing only. It is because of sin. Romans 5 verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man. That is our first father, Adam, of whom we have just been thinking. And death through sin. And in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Now we noted in passing, and we will be returning to it in a moment or two, that Christ in his humanity was morally without flaw. We can put it like this. He was born both with a clean record and a clean heart, neither guilty nor corrupt, but not you or I. Because of our connection with Adam, all of us here, everyone in the world, is born guilty and corrupt. That is why we die. By the constitution of God, we are all of us held to have sinned and fallen when Adam sinned and fell. And as a consequence, you and I, all of us, were born with something on our record and sin in our hearts and as a consequence, justly liable to death. Adam's penalty has become ours as well. Death. God does us no injustice in bringing our lives to an end. Eventually, he Act rightly, properly, justly, because all of us, from the very outset of life, are chargeable with sin. And the wages of sin is death. 
But now we come to our Lord Jesus Christ and the solemn matter of his death. And you understand that we are taking a very considerable step. It is one thing to acknowledge that he was naturally susceptible to death and therefore needed to be fed and clothed and protected from harm. But we are going beyond that now, way beyond that. We're thinking now about Jesus becoming what Adam became, what we are, justly liable to death. We're thinking now about it being right that Jesus should die, right that God should inflict death upon him. Now, if Jesus were a sinner like you and I, there would be nothing difficult about that. We would just have to look at his life and all its beauty, flawed by sin, and say, well, that's just what happens to sinners. Sinners inevitably die. Good men, good women, as they may be. But then Jesus was no sinner, was he? He was morally without flaw. From beginning to end, in heart and in life, he was altogether free from sin. Peter describes him as the lamb without blemish or defect. Yet, he dies. Dies horribly. And there is no question, but God is the one who brings it all to pass. He does not spare his own son, but delivers him up to the death of the cross. Furthermore, in doing so, he does not act unjustly. He does not act wickedly. How could God act unjustly. Sinless as the Son of God is in himself, in some way or other, it's the necessary conclusion, in some way or other, he has become justly liable to death. Something has happened. Something that it makes it right for him to die. Right for God to inflict death. And you know what that something is, don't you? I give it to you in the words of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Most of us here this evening, I suppose, are Christians. And in the case of each and every one of us who is a Christian, something very special has been received from the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness. It has been put down to our account. It has been imputed to us or credited to us. And on the basis of it, our sins have all been pardoned. And we have found acceptance with God and have received from him the gift of eternal life. It is, if you like, the other side of the story. Adam's sin and his sin being credited to us. And as a consequence, born into the world with sin on the record and sin in our hearts and justly liable to death. And now the other side of the story. As we believe in Christ, something that is his becomes ours. 
his righteousness, covering all our sin and on the basis of it, forgiveness and acceptance and eternal life. But long before what Jesus Christ became ours, there was something of ours that became his. Our sin. As his righteousness has been credited to us, perhaps just last week, if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ just last week, so our sin way back then was put down to his account. He accepted responsibility for it. He became legally answerable for it, chargeable with it. And that is why we can speak about Christ and his humanity becoming justly liable to death, sinless as he personally is. He has taken our sin. He has assumed liability for it. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That he might suffer and die for it. And by doing so, deliver us from its guilt and power. As you think about Jesus Christ in his humanity, dying upon the cross of Calvary, there is a very important sense in which you can say, he does not deserve this. He does not deserve to die. Because personally, he is free from all sin. But we must also say, in order to get the full picture, nevertheless, it is right for him to die. Because wonder of wonders, he has made my sin his own. Thirdly, Christ in his humanity voluntarily embracing death. I've quoted to you a number of texts in which the emphasis is placed very decidedly upon the role of God the Father in Jesus' death. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. And to those we might add the words of Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. When I think of the words of the early church as they prayed to God and said about Jesus' enemies, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God the Father is the prime mover in the sufferings of his Son. It was God the Father who sent him to be a propitiation for our sins. And it was God the Father who gave him up to the sufferings of Calvary that that propitiatory offering might be made. You know very well, however, that there is another side to the story. And that is the scripture emphasis. And it is there with equal emphasis upon Christ's voluntariness in embracing the death of the cross. It is said, for example, that he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Philippians chapter 2. It was an obedience that was readily and ungrudgingly rendered. Or it is said that he was delivered up to the sufferings of the cross. But it is also true that there was no compulsion. We speak about the covenant of redemption, the pre-temple arrangement amongst the persons of the Trinity to save a people from their sins. To that eternal covenant, Christ was a willing party. Even though his part would involve coming in our flesh and dying for our sin. Those of you here who are pastors like me, you know how the doctrine of propitiation is misrepresented. How it supposedly sets before us a wrathful father who is made willing and loving by a much more loving son. And we say, of course, no, the Father is as loving and willing to save as the Son is. But we can put it just as emphatically the other way around. The Son is just as loving and willing to save as the Father is. And it is in relation to his love that the Scripture brings out just how voluntary, how much a matter of his own heart's wish the death of Calvary was. I think, for example, of Paul's words in Ephesians 5. Live a life of love, he says. Walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or again, those precious words in Galatians 2 where the Apostle Paul makes it so very personal to himself and speaks of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or I think of the words of John in his first letter when he says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us in his humanity voluntarily lovingly embracing death for us. And John leaves us in no doubt as to what the lesson of that love is. And nor does the Apostle Paul. Paul says, walk in love. And that we might know just exactly how far we are supposed to take that, John says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That is the lesson of Calvary. Now you know that there is a point beyond which we cannot go in saying that the cross of Calvary is there for our imitation. Because Christ is the one and only death rendered as an atonement for sin. And yet that very same cross of Calvary is set before us for our imitation. It's a model for husbands. Those of us who are husbands, how are we to love our wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. More broadly, it's to be the model of the believer's love for his 
fellow believers. Just how selflessly, how self-sacrificingly are we to love one another? Well, says John, look at Calvary. Look at Christ, says Paul, in his humanity, lovingly, voluntarily embracing death. That, he says, is your model. You are to love like him, even though it should be to the extent of laying down our lives for one another. And more broadly still, it is a model for our love for sinners, for lost men and women, boys and girls, for who will the object of the love of Christ as expressed on the cross of Calvary, men and women, boys and girls, lost in sin, his own enemies, and he loved them so much that he was willing to die for them. And isn't it such a humbling thing to rub shoulders with Christians, to read about them, to meet them in person, so constrained by this love of Christ for them and for the lost, that they are prepared to pay any price to reach and win the lost. That's the model and how we need the grace of God. So we have thought about Christ and his humanity being naturally susceptible to death. And in his humanity becoming justly liable to death. And in his humanity voluntarily embracing death. And now in the fourth place, I want us to think for a little about Christ in his humanity fully experiencing death. According to Holy Scripture, the Word of God, our standard. There lies before us as sinners not just one death, but two. And it may be that there is someone here this evening, and this is news for you. You have never heard this before. There is, of course, the physical death, which when it comes, separates the spirit from the body. But beyond that, there is what is referred to in the Bible as the second death. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, speaks about those who overcome not being hurt at all by the second death. What is the second death? I thought we only had to die once. There's a second death. And it is the separation of the whole person body and spirit together from God and the experience of His saving grace and His love forever. Unless that should sound to anyone here this evening a desirable thing. For to some people who would keep God out of their lives, who just don't want God poking His nose in, it can sound very desirable to be without this God forever and ever. Lest anyone should think that a desirable thing. I need to say to you that the second death involves a suffering and a ruin and an external, eternal extinction 
of hope of anything being different that is horrible beyond imagining. Before us, unless God in his mercy should save us, there is death in a twofold sense. Physical death, then at the general resurrection and judgment at the end of time, a second death. And here is the thing that links these two deaths together. They are each the penalty of sin. Death physical, death eternal, separately and together the wages of sin. Now it was of just such a death that Christ tasted when he died upon the cross of Calvary. Death in this double sense. Death in its fullest and awfulest sense. There is the very obvious physical death. His enemies nailed him to a cross with a view to putting him to death and they succeeded. When he was taken down from the cross, he was dead. The same separation of spirit from body that takes place when we die, it was experienced by him. He committed his spirit into his father's hands His body was laid to rest. He was dead. But what about the second day? The separation of the whole person, body and soul together, from God forever. Surely he did not experience that. Well, in actual fact, he did, at least in essence. It is the meaning of those hours of darkness that fell over all the land. It is the interpretation of his agonizing cry, Why have you forsaken me? In a way that is impossible for us to understand, there is a separation that has taken place between the Father and the Son. In his spirit and body together, he is experiencing the second death for sinners. Not certainly in duration, but unquestionably in essence. The woe and the misery and the pain of it all in an intensely concentrated form of sufficient intensity and of sufficient duration to satisfy the justice of God. Now it is this death within death that is the hardest thing of all for him. It was that that he supremely shrank back from. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the physical death was bad enough to contemplate, but the separation that would precede it, the giving up of his whole person, his body and his soul together to the experience of the judgment when from eternity he had known nothing but the divine favour. There is no exaggeration to say that that was infinitely worse. And because of it, and this is the glorious good news of the gospel, there is no need for you or for me to experience the second death. 
For you remember that this death of Calvary was fully experienced, not for his own sake, as a penalty for his own sins, but for our sakes. That we might be delivered from it. And if tonight Jesus Christ is truly your Saviour and Lord, because you have come to him in faith and repentance, that deliverance is a present reality. And you will never taste of the second death. It will never hurt you at all. And if you will come to him, as he freely invites you to do, and put your trust in him, you repent of your sin and cry out to him for your mercy, you too may be assured of the very same deliverance. You will not perish, but have everlasting life. One last thing. Christ in his humanity forever freed from death. You boys and girls will know, I am sure, that on at least three occasions, Jesus Christ raised someone from the dead. And I'm sure, if I were to ask you, I won't. But if I were to ask you, you would be able to tell me who they were. There was the daughter of Jairus. There was the son of the widow of Nain. And there was Lazarus. Wonderful, wonderful miracles. But in each of these three instances, death, came again. The relief was real, but it was only temporary. But when our Savior Jesus rose from the dead, it was not just for a time, it was forever. In his humanity, by his death for sin, he so dealt with sin, so perfectly and forever, that afterwards he was forever freed from death. It no longer had any power over him. And to give him up. And I cannot have him back. And one day, if we are his, we will be forever freed from death as well. It's an element that is there already for us. We've just been thinking about the second death, the eternal separation of the whole man from God. From that we are already free. If Christ is our Saviour, for those of us who have come to him, that death has no terrors whatsoever. And as for physical death, from that there is going to be freedom as well. Some of those who are Christ's will never even see it. They will be alive at his coming. In the language of Scripture, they will never be un clothed, but rather clothed with their heavenly dwelling, with what is mortal being swallowed up by life. And for those who are in their graves, well, I commend to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the most blessed of chapters with its great promise of a future resurrection, a resurrection that will forever free us from death. And you remember the language. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. That's what happened to Jesus Christ himself. 
perishable has clothed itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. And for those who are his, at the last day, it will be exactly the same. I wonder how many of you have felt coming here to the GA how quickly a year passes by. Scarcely seems a year since we met before. And the coming year will pass with equal swiftness. And isn't it a solemn thought that for some of us perhaps, by the time the General Assembly comes round next year, we will be in our graves. But if we are Christ's, if he is ours and we are his, his future is ours. You think about him tonight in his humanity, forever freed from death. And you say to yourself, because he died and rose again, my future will be the same. I too will be forever freed from death. It will hold me in its grasp only for a time and then it will release me. And when it does so, I will be free of it forever. Isn't Jesus Christ a great Savior? Isn't this a great salvation? And if there is anyone here this evening, young, old, in between, and it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter your sin, this Savior is a Savior for you. This salvation that brings us out of death into the enjoyment of eternal life. This is a salvation for you. And this same Jesus, who died and rose again, stands before you in the Gospel this evening. And he does so with wide open arms and with loving, tender voice. And would invite you to himself to come and to enjoy the benefits and the blessings that he came and lived and died to procure for sinners. The only qualification is for you to feel your need. And if you know that you need him, you come to him and he will receive you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for his wonderful death. We thank you for this great reason for his incarnation, for his coming in our flesh that he might taste death for us, the death deserved by us. Holy Father, we ask that for the sake of Jesus it would please you not only to bless his own here this night but to draw to him those who are yet separated from him you know why certain ones are here 
and what their need is. And unitedly from our hearts we cry to you that Jesus would become their Savior. Lord, open their hearts that they might respond to the message and receive him whom to know is life eternal. In his name we pray. Amen.